This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I am your host and the author and narrator of Mindframe, David Moten, and with me as always is Brent Van Tassel, the producer extraordinaire um, and the co-founder of Podbelly. And Podbelly, of course, is an amazing website you can go to to learn more information about how to podcast and to find a great directory of podcasts. And Mindframe is a Podbelly original. Um, we are talking this week about chapter 12, and we're getting um, back to a Teddy chapter. So we're going to, to revisit Teddy. But before we do, just a quick plug for our Patreon account. Um, if you want to get our sit-down episodes, which we record every week alongside our regular episodes, where myself and Zach and Brent talk about the content in the chapter and discuss some of the mysteries, and as more mysteries unravel and others appear, we talk about the new mysteries, and we talk about everything from the technology that exists in the world of Mindframe to the writing process to writer's block to everything that you can imagine. So it's really a whole second podcast. They're usually a lot longer than the actual episodes, but if you're interested, then you can go to patreon.com backslash Mindframe podcast, and you can donate there, and you can also get some pretty cool, uh, unique t-shirts and other uh, swag and, and different uh, rewards based on the level that you pledge at. So... This, as I said, is chapter 12. It's a Teddy chapter. When we last uh, saw Teddy, he was uh, visiting the dame and he was, as always, trying to help Josephine. But he ended by discussing the fact that his old mentor, a man named Mac, was coming to town. And in chapter 12, we finally see the meetup between Teddy and Mac and the interesting pitch that is thrown at Teddy. So I hope you enjoy chapter 12. Chapter 12, Teddy. Circa 1960. Teddy waited in the pale light of morning. Rain clouds still clung to the air, as they had all winter, a sick child grasping a tattered coat. The sky was shrouded in it, the gray of faded denim, a starched thing, no blue of any sort. This season's storms were some of the worst on record, and they delayed endless projects, important projects that helped secure the future. Teddy smoked a cigarette as Manny and Junior unwrapped homemade sandwiches of pulled pork from waxed paper and chased them with heavy bites of coffee from tall thermoses. People moved in streams, suitcases and trunks, porters in uniforms and passengers dressed fine for travel. The wet air tasted of concrete and dew and had a dense texture that air shouldn't have. It seemed to Teddy that everyone was ready to depart the winter wet. The depot was hopping with people eager to leave the sprinkle of rain, and, Teddy suspected, people just as eager to be here in the rain instead of snow from whatever colder place they were from. The grass is always greener, Teddy said. Manny and Junior looked at him and waited for him to elaborate. He didn't, so they kept to their lunch. The train, having announced itself for some time now with distant screams of compressed air and roars of engine, pulled in slowly, more haze pumping from its breast. Teddy remembered fixing a train in Manila with Mac, working on that massive diesel engine, doing some welds where the sides had been blown off in a Nipponese attack. That repair was a year after the war, but the battered train was a casualty. Boats were typically their thing back there, but as Mac said, the train was the same thing as a boat, only more limited in the waves it could catch. This train today had never seen more trauma than a snooty housewife or a drunken old man both of which were plentiful on the loading docks. Eventually, the crowd grew dense due to a surge of disembarkers, weary of travel and eager to be here in town. 
The swarm dissipated as people leaving the train met relatives on platforms and caught cabs. Teddy could spot the arrivals from the departures. One set was exhausted, sore of back, tie unfurled, top button undone, ready to find a bar and a smoke. The other set was eager. A world of adventure awaited, full of new faces, new stories. Among the former came Mac. He wore jeans and a tank top, a peacoat slung over his right shoulder and an olive drab rucksack in his left hand. His eyes were mischievous, and he darted glances behind himself as if someone were going to stop him. His grin told Teddy that there was about to be trouble. This one yours, Mac said as a greeting, eyeing Teddy's truck bed. Teddy nodded and flicked his smoke into the gutter. Boys, Mac said, throwing his bag and coat into the back of the truck where the men were eating on the tailgate. Junior tossed Mac a sandwich and a salute. Mac gave Junior a deep hug and looked Manny up and down. This can't be Manny, he said, impressed at what the young man had become. Manny flushed like a child and gave a broad grin and acknowledgement. Best we get shoving off. Sooner is better, he said, opening the passenger door with a creak and getting in. Instead of a hug for his protege, Mac said, What, Theodore? You don't know how to fix a creaky door? Teddy sat at the wheel and cranked the key. Junior and Manny hopped in the bed among the tools and slammed the tailgate shut. As the engine turned over, he heard a woman exclaim, Well, he must be out here somewhere. You absolutely must find that man. She was on the wooden platform, a large lady wearing pearls, red in the face, standing next to a member of station security and a short Negro porter. Teddy drove off and saw her slide her neck this way and that, looking for Mac. Her pink dress was ruffled and must, and she was trying to straighten it down to cover up her slip. It took you less than five minutes, Teddy said, shaking his head. Wasn't my fault, Theodore. It was a moral imperative. What did you do? What did she do? Fine, old man, what did she do? Well, I don't take kindly to rich white women calling black kids pickaninnies and trying to pay them a quarter to rub their heads and feel their hair. She wanted luck for the train when we were boarding back in St. Louis and when the boy's father declined her generous offer, the fucking sow did it anyway. Rubbed his head for luck and threw a quarter at his feet. And you just stewed on it for two days. And nothing. I forgot about it. But she ended up lining up right next to me when we were getting off the train and ready to leave. She told her husband that she was hoping to see that one pickaninny again and rub his head one last time. So I told her I needed my face to be thrust between a sow's udders. For luck. And then I did. I stuck my face right there in her boobs and did my best impression of an Atomy-class river gunboat and just sort of rooted around in there. I may have also squeezed her behind and dropped a quarter into her bra as well. Then I said, for luck, you understand, and left the train. By the way, I thought this was California. Where's the damn sunshine? Where does the government have that all fucked up now, too? Mac changed subjects, as if the event on the train was normal. And Teddy realized that, for Mac, it was. This wasn't a wild tale in Mac's book. It was just a Tuesday morning. He could never suffer a fool. With a nostalgic cluck in his throat, Teddy joined the current topic and said, Wettest on record. Gets chilly a bit at night. How was the train? Full of fat, rude, racist sows who ask too many goddamn questions and insult the Negroes is how it was. Food was fine. Mac snored on Teddy's bed. And Teddy lay, with his legs curled up a bit, on the short couch. Mac had a tumbler of whiskey, ate some Arrow's Caldo soup that the wives had fixed for his arrival, took a long shower, and fell to sleeping instantly. 
The air in the small mother-in-law apartment was heavy with shower moisture and company. Normally, these were the hours when Teddy watched mindless television until it went off the air or listened to old records, but he didn't want to disturb Mac. Instead, Teddy laid on the couch, and the sensory cues and reminders started to take him back. He could never tell if he was awake or asleep when they came upon him, these psychological hobgoblins. They happened when he was in bed most often, but too they happened during the day, wide awake. The only person he'd ever confided them in was his secretary, Kathy. One late night preparing for a tax audit, and she assured him it was normal, that her father did the same thing when he got back from what was now called World War I. Flashbacks, she called them. Shell shock. She was abnormally tender about it, very unCathy. She talked Teddy through it and let him know that a human mind could only contain so much trauma, so much stress, so much history before it had to do something to let the pressure escape. For Teddy, and for many veterans apparently, these flashes were part of it. He only had them when he was alone, never with Junior or Manny or the family. They usually came upon him when Teddy was overwhelmed with moments of his past. The world would change around him, locations and sensory data fading in and out as worlds merged. It felt like someone turned the lights down for a second, and when they faded back up, all the set pieces had been rearranged. Backdrops hung and flown away into the large wings of reality. This time, his small mother-in-law apartment, humid and heavy with Mac, wasn't there anymore. Now the world, for all intents, was Manila, 20 years back. The Nipponese occupations. He was in the war again, the labor camp again. He'd worked brutal shifts, 18 hours, 20. He was feeling the sag of his pants, which had grown baggier by the day. He'd already cut the rope he wore as a belt twice as he got thinner on his diet of a thin soup made of what must have been seaweed and fish heads and a bread made from something very far removed from wheat flour and thickened with sawdust from the mill. He was hungry and his body broken, but he was alive. And that was more than thousands could say after the Nipponese invaded. Rumors swirled that the Americans, General MacArthur, would be back and free the city. Teddy knew this was a lie. America was still trying to free Europe, so they surely couldn't fight a war on two fronts to any effect. And who weighed more on the American pendulum of justice, Great Britain or the Philippines? In Teddy's mental phantasm, he had just laid down from a day of labor. He curled up in his cramped wooden bunk at the labor camp, a coffin made of thick, jagged timbers. Two people had to sleep in each bunk, although to think even one could sleep in such a small rack was laughable. He lay there in the wooden cot, his feet at Mac's head, Mac's feet at his head. No blanket or mattress to give warmth, just the body of your bunkmate. Mac snored and slept, his two skinny ribs poking into Teddy's legs like teeth from a mouth too exhausted to chew him up. Mac was just as skinny as Teddy, just as worked down. But he always had a joke and a smile and sage advice, Mac did. He always got a laugh, even out of the guards, who called him Dukishi, which he later found out meant clown. It made sense. In this flashback, Teddy curled next to Mac's body, the sounds of welding and hammers and groans of bending steel coming from the workyards, harsh barks in the Japanese language, the coughing of the sick. A gunshot every now and then pierced the night just as the spotlights did, scanning the sky for American B-29s. The night dragged on, and Teddy knew that the morning would be made the worst for it. Nights he didn't sleep kept Teddy groggy, forced him to make mistakes, bad cuts, 
skewed measurements. Only Mac and his quick tongue and steady hand kept Teddy from Nipponese beatings. Only Mac kept food in Teddy's bowl. He wondered if the camp had already done damage to his way of thinking. Here he was, building ships, repairing vehicles used by his enemy. These ships would launch from the docks and fight a war against his people. Their quest for domination was supported by every weld Teddy made, every bolt he turned to place. His logical, loyal mind told him to stop working to support them. They'd kill him, but his work wouldn't kill someone from his side. But he couldn't stop. It was the work. Seeing the holes in a hull vanish, watching an engine purr again after taking shrapnel and dying, cleaning the blood from the inside of a set of lifeboats and loading them back up on a cruiser, that was what Teddy was meant to do. He was compelled to, felt obsessed by it, even at the horrible toll he was extolling from good, decent people trying to stop the Nipponese. Teddy woke up to Mac's old snore, and he heard hammering. It was hard to tell if the flashback was real or if this morning was. The two worlds, Teddy's real world and this war flashback, both seemed distant, fake, like a radio play laying over top of some grander reality that only Mac was in touch with. The hammering stopped, and he heard Junior calling to Reyna to see if it was level now, before he kept hammering something inside the house. Teddy was awake. This was real. This was 1960, well beyond the broken boundaries of the war. Somewhere in the night, Teddy fell asleep, and his horrible flashback had become a genuine dream, a dream of hunger and an aching body, and torture and torment and death. But eventually, as with all dreams, it ended with the morning. Come on, softy, Mac said from his bed as he sat up. He stared at Teddy for too long a beat, checking in on him. For a moment, there was a surge of compassion in the old man's eyes. Mac could see the trouble still hanging over Teddy's mind like a dense fog. But his look of concern was quietly replaced with a typical mischievous twinkle. The old man reached into his rucksack and dug out a pack of cigarettes, tossed them to Teddy. It was the classic white package with the red Lucky Strike logo emblazoned on them. Smoked all yours last night in the yard, catching up with Reyna. Looking forward to their breakfast, Mac said, thrusting a thumb toward the main house. Told him last night they had to outdo dinner, which I didn't think was possible. Mac stood, wearing what he slept in, jeans and his muscle shirt. The old man was in incredible shape. No fat, just lean strings of muscle popping and shifting over one another. A class could have been taught about the human anatomy just looking at what happened when Mac picked up a hammer. Let's chow and see your operation. So that's them, the three housing tracks. And then I'm working the big place up on Enlai and the office complex over on Jinping Street. And then the work I'm doing up the mountain. Teddy pulled the truck up to the construction trailer to park it. And the area was abuzz with activity. The lumber and drywall loads had gotten there, so crews were loading their trucks and moving it out. The foundations were dry now, and the studs were going in to start framing. Next would come the roofing and then the sheetrock. Looks like your inventory came in, Mac said, tossing his smoke from the window of the truck. Yeah, studs and roofing, then we'll finally get to the sheetrock. I'm worried having it all out in the elements like that, so I'm trying to get them to move their asses. The roofing will make a big difference to work during all these storms. You using that new drywall technique I showed you? Mac asked, the tone accusatory, as if Teddy forgot or thought better of it. Yes, old man, I know a good method when I see one. There won't be any wasted space inside of those buildings. More efficient, quick as hell, too. Good. Good. 
what all are you using the drywall on? The past three housing tracks, uh, plus those two big places I mentioned, I was going to start doing it on the old hotel as well. Matt cut Teddy off. Don't you dare. That's a proper lady up the hill. You use the old techniques for her. That's how she's supposed to be built. I know, I said I was gonna, not I am gonna. But I don't know when I'll get up there anyway. We gotta get those roofs up to protect the structures from the storms. Max snorted and shook his head. All this track housing. Seems boring as shit, Theodore. It's never boring, you know that. Always a minor catastrophe, something to keep you occupied. Always good long days, Teddy countered. No, you're right, not boring. That's not quite what I'm touching on. It just seems unimportant. That hurt him a little. He was building the future for a hundred families, a post-war boom in happiness and prosperity, and Teddy was helping usher that in with these suburban areas filled with houses for babies and families that were steadily multiplying. Teddy powered his truck down and said, unimportant. Yeah, pointless. Day in, day out, building shit that anyone could build. Hell, the janitor or the elementary school principal or whoever the fuck is buying the house could have built the places themselves. They would have back in my day. I mean it, Theo. Anyone could do what you do. You're meant for something better than laying a thousand foundations for snickerdoodle gardens or whatever stupid-ass name the city council gave your latest cul-de-sac. Academy Heights. Ah, Academy Heights, Yale Street, Harvard Lane. Does this town even have a college? Teddy's shrug and silence was answer enough. You're doing bullshit work, my old friend. You have a destiny, and this ain't it. I make a lot of money, Mac. Yes, I do stuff that may not be winning a war to save democratic thought for the planet Earth, but don't act like I'm not doing something good. People get homes. People are employed. My crews make good money doing it. The old man stroked his beard for a moment and asked, Is there one project you care about? Honestly care about. Mac lit another cigarette and cracked the window, indicating he had no intention of leaving the cab at the moment. Mac's jeans and flannel were pristine, neatly tucked. His hair had flecks of pure white at the tips and darker black at the bottom, but neither color won the battle. Mac ended up a darker gray, the same color as the sky here in the valley. He currently had a wild beard, long but pointed and trimmed into a sharp V. His skin was tan and deeply wrinkled from life among the elements. Teddy didn't even have to think to answer his question. Yes, the old dame. She's a beaut, like I told you. She was built using the old ways and she's a fine thing. I could spend weeks up there and never return until she was complete. Why don't you? It means something. Kathy and your army of trained mallet monkeys can keep things afloat down here in your shipyard. They'll make the quotas, keep the brass happy. I've thought about it. Uh, think, think, think. I can tell it's Theodore Brown I'm talking to because all the goddamn thinking. What about acting? Look at me. Teddy did. We got one go-round, boyo, and how we go round is more important than what we leave behind. If you're happy building a thousand houses at a time, like Lucy making bonbons on a conveyor belt, you tell me so. Right now. If you'd be happier doing something with more meaning, admit to that instead. Teddy paused and lit a smoke himself. He picked up his thermos and gave it a slosh to see what was in there. Empty. Mac must have drained it as they drove around town examining the projects. Construction always made Teddy happy. The act of it, the design, the finished product, and the myriad of micro-decisions and individual actions that led to it. But it used to be more rewarding. Mac was right. 
Once Manila was freed by the Americans in the war, fixing a ship that was going to help ensure victory would elevate Teddy's soul. The ship would float back into the sea after dry dock, ready to be loaded with men and ammunition and dire purpose. Getting jeeps to run again so they could cart around marines after the liberation when democracy finally fell back on the world. That all meant so much. And Teddy had to admit, all of his current work was just a distraction. A way to pass the days and build a number in a bank account. All except the dame. The old dame. She means a lot to me. The rest? Yeah, like you said. Numbers in a bank account. Then finish the dame, goddammit. Get that spooky hotel less spookified. When you're done with that, hit the road for a bit. It's the year of our Lord, 1960, believe it or not, and you need to see what America has grown to since the war. Come with me to St. Louis. Be my number one on the Arch Project. It's going to be a hell of a sight. It'll beat most of the monuments in Washington, D.C. when it's done. A giant arch. A heaving metal goliath that'll serve as the gateway to the West. A gateway to the future, they say. It's more than just a sculpture, it's a symbol. It tells the eastern states that their time is done. It tells the world that the West has won. It says to other countries that while you're still scrambling to house and feed your desperate post-Hitler population, we're building monuments to the heavens that open up to a world of possibility. The lariat is closing, Teddy said without thinking. Muscle memory of the mouth. Bah, my ass, Max said. Teddy had never heard Max so impassioned about something as he was this St. Louis arch. He took a few more drags from his smoke and Kathy came out of the trailer, scanning the parking area to find Teddy's truck. She spotted him and slowly made her way over. Max stared at Kathy, and Teddy for the first time realized the old man had a genuine dislike for the woman. Max said, Don't tell anyone what you just now decided, and I know you decided already, Theodore. They'll try to talk you out of it, especially that pain-in-the-ass secretary you got. I'll tell you what, Max said, flicking the butt of his smoke out the window of the truck in Kathy's general direction. You finish the dame. See how you feel. If you fix that hotel and feel the old high, if you get that bones-to-balls feeling we used to get back in Manila when some impossible thing went right and a ship was worthy again, you hang on to it. You chase it, and you follow me to St. Louis. If you don't, and the hotel is just another job got done, then I'm happy for you. You've built a hell of a business here, Theo. You really have. But I don't think it's enough. He leaned into Teddy, almost nose to nose, and said, I think you need to be with me. The intensity was almost palpable, a physical thing that permeated the world around him. Max sat back, reached into his breast pocket and pulled out the pack of smokes. He found it empty and crumpled it up, tossing the incredibly tight wad onto the floorboards. They sat in the cab, the rumbling of construction trucks and the sound of saws and hammers echoing from every direction, making Teddy feel lost by all of it. Matt continued after a hard pause, but softer. Look, like I said, don't tell anyone, especially her. She finds out you plan to sell or something, she may try to sabotage you. I've seen it happen when a secretary don't want to lose a good boss. Just look for what satisfies your soul, man. If it's the importance of the project, not merely the completion of it, then I've got a spare room in St. Louis and an arch to open. Good beer there, too. So what will Teddy decide? Will he finish the dame and go to St. Louis? Will he decide to stick with his cul-de-sac construction? Uh, we'll have to tune in to find out five chapters from now. 
But in closing, um, I always want to say if you're interested in the other fiction that I've done, starting with the novel 181 Pine, which is a science fiction novel, but a completely different world than this one. Or if you want to find the books of Zach Smith, who does the, the questioning during our sit down episodes, you can go to the merch store at mindframepodcast.com. You can also find all sorts of other merchandise from t-shirts to coffee mugs to socks and everything you can think of. And if you can think of something that isn't on the merch store, contact us and we'll make it happen. Also, I always want to shout out uh, Podbelly. We are uh, Podbelly Original, and you can go there to find a really great listing of amazing podcasts that you can download. They range from all sorts of topics, from paranormal to comedy, uh, but you can find uh, shows such as We're Not Sure Yet and Nerds on Topic. You're sure to find something that you really enjoy if you go to podbelly.com. On social media, if you want to interact with us, which is actually a really, really helpful thing to do um, for every podcast that you do listen to, subscribe, like, follow, share. Uh, You can find us on Facebook at Mindframe Podcast. You can find us on Instagram at The Mindframe Podcast. If Twitter is your thing, we are The Mindframe Pod. And if you like Reddit, you can go to r slash Mindframe Podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening. And remember, the lariat is closing.